Hey everyone, this is the uh, Nips and Sips podcast uh, featuring uh, Dr. Jeremy Boyd, that's me, and Dr. Brandon Cruz over there. Uh, today we're going to be continuing our discussion on uh, ACL reconstructions and the rehab. Uh, we kind of left off on the early uh, phases or the first couple months of rehab. Um, so we're going to pick up where we left off and uh, you know keep uh, keep trying to provide some what we do and some information and some research on uh, progressing these clients. But uh, before I get too much in the weeds of it, how's it going, Brandon? Going well. Uh, thanks, Jeremy. Um, real quick side note for you sports fans. I'm actually wearing my, my cowboy gear here. Oh. We signed, except I just found out we signed Dak to a ridiculously awful um, contract, like $175 million. Uh, really? I just, I just don't think he's worth that. He hasn't done anything yet. Um, so you're stuck any with him for fans years. out there, let me know how you feel. Any Giants fans, I don't need your um, feedback. Thank you. Um, but with that, I have I've <laughs> finishing off my drink today. Last of my Bib and Tucker. Um, I have to go restock because that actually became one of my favorites. Uh, Jerry, what you got today? Um, I uh, have American Solera. Uh, Terpy Galaxy. It's a double IPA, eight percent. So again, if I start get a little funny towards the end of the podcast you guys know why i've never had this i went to a pretty much a craft beer liquor store and the guy was like you have to try this showed me a picture of what it looks like and i was sold on it i'm drinking it from the red white and brew uh beer company which was the last brewery i went to before the pandemic hit they just started so i hope i hope they're doing well um but really cool breweries in an old bank. So the old fashioned vault with the, you know, the spinning lock sort of thing. So oh, nice. they redid it. They kept it all. So it's pretty awesome. But uh, let me get a sip of this bad boy. Nice. Uh, Jared, next time, it... I, I think you need to start getting your, your slow pours in, in the shot here, man. Cause oh. it was uh, looking, that... it's looking luscious when you do it. I'll do that next time. Oh, go. and the, the beer is luscious. Um, What's well, something, something sweet? I'm trying to look up if it had anything of actually what it is, but kind of got a flowery kind of. Let me get another sip here. Hold on. Yeah, yeah take your time, man. We need the the juices flowing correctly for the for this uh, episode. Is it is kind of a juicy, uh, more of a juicy double IPA. Um, pretty good. Um, as I said, I've been kind of in the double IPAs of late. Uh, they have things that bone saw by me and their squeezins, but pretty good, pretty delicious. No description of exactly what's in it, but I'm a fan of it. Uh, but right, you know, let's talk. Yeah, you know, let's talk more about ACLs. All right, just to kind of kind of circle back and recap uh, on what we talked about last time, I'm going to share this. Uh, uh, Derek, can you uh, enable my screen sharing here? Oh, uh, um, yeah, sorry. Always. In, in the first episode, we decided to split this one up into like a two-parter because the first uh, um, podcast we did about ACL part one really focused on um, surgery and, and the initial phase, which is kind of that return um, to ADLs and return to work and what we should really focus on that first, you know, four to six weeks after um, after post-op, uh, attacking range of motion, especially extension and attacking those quads. Um, so that's what we kind of talked about last time. We're now going to kind of jump into the rest of our progression, uh, which would be, you know, that month two and three, uh, which is like that strength phase, uh, leading up to that return to running three months seems to be that kind of gold standard there where everyone wants to return to running at three months and, and then some additional testing uh, leading up to um, or the phases between running and returning to sport. Uh, and I think that's where things don't go as well as we want to. If you guys remember uh, some of the stats last time, uh, only about 55 to 70% of uh, patients return to their pre-level uh, a function or a pre-level of, um, I guess, ability to, to return to sport at their prior level, uh, which for a, a surgery that's um, probably one of the most in the country, at least here in the U.S., uh, is not that good of a, a success rate, in my opinion. And I think, Jeremy, you share that same, same sentiment. So uh, I guess, can we question some things today 
um, and what's out there and, and just, you know, not go by the standard protocol um, that is out there. Yeah, Joe, your, your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, and uh, even the most performative, you know, surgery and obviously I think it's also the most, as we discussed last time, the most researched one. Um, so we are clearly not doing a good enough job, but I think that does fall more on the, on the rehab side of things. Um, obviously I recommend that those surgeries should, there is a very complex surgery and should be performed by someone who all they do is ACLs. Um, I think there is a, I don't, I didn't know the conversation would go that way. Um, there was a research study about almost general orthopedists who just perform ACLs here and there versus ones that do it more frequently. And obviously if you practice it more, you tend to have better outcomes. Um, but in your smaller towns and those sort of things, uh, you may not have access to a more specialized uh, surgeon. But uh, beyond that, you know, this is where it comes down to on the rehab. You know, we talked about before, James Andrews says, you know, it's really on the rehab to get the job done. Um, and kind of highlighting, you know, how well the job we do, but I think we need to do a better job of things. So as you say, it's not just following just, you know, you know, basic guidelines and stuff. Well, how can we take it the next step further? How can we really base it off of, you know, you know, specifically to our clients, you know, we're seeing things like apps that can do our rehab, you know, for you or, you know, some surgeons say, hey, you don't need that much. I've said, I saw one study, it was like, oh, you need one, one session for every six weeks with ACLs or something okay. of that nature. Um, you know, that's, you're, you're giving these apps and that's not, that's very cookie cutter based. And, you know, if you work with ACLs long enough, you know, especially in those early phases, some maybe flexion machines and can get a lot of it and suck with extension and vice versa. Uh, some may have quad control, some may not. So not to kind of get into the cookie cutter um, things because everyone's a little bit different. Um, but yeah, well, a little tangent there. It's good. Uh, I think aside from, you know, the cookie cutter and the protocols, I, I don't know about you. I really don't follow those protocols anymore. I mean, they're there just to, to make mm -hmm. sure we're on a timeline to adhere to the, the surgeons. But other yeah. than that, I'm, I'm going to do what I need to do uh, to get the patient where they need to go. Um, Absolutely. And I mean, personally, I'm not huge uh, on post-ops because to me they're, um, I don't want to say they're boring, but they kind of are. Um, if you're taking it, if you're taking the viewpoint of, oh, I love post-ops because I get just to uh, follow, follow the phases. Well, then you're, you're doing it wrong to allude to, to your point there, Jer. Um, yep. And I know you had the phases there, so I want you to shoot up that, that phase there. And then I want to transition the, the talk to um, utilizing and, you know, obviously strengthening and attacking the, the quads and hamstrings, but uh, your thoughts on use of NMES and, you know, for those people who have those lazy quads, uh, should we use it for all patients, some patients, no patients? Um, so after, after you shoot this up, what are your thoughts on that one? Yeah, um, I agree with you. I kind of don't go crazy with uh, protocols or anything like that. Actually, most of the surgeons by me with ACLs, they're not really, their scripts are just as basic as they've always kind of been. It's now like typed out ACL, blah, blah, blah. And it almost kind of to the point where, I don't know if they just trust PT or maybe it's my clinic or whatever it may be, and they don't, and they trust that we're progressing them appropriately, which I, I like that. I mean, I always like to take a respect. Um, you should always get the surgical report. Um, mm -hmm. You can find out a lot more is done and you do need to take, you know, take that into um, account there. Um, but to solely rely on a protocol, um, you're doing yourself, your client at the service. I've had some people that have blown past protocols of how quickly they responded and vice versa. Um, and if you're just basing off of like the time of protocols, uh, you can be really screwing some people up. If you don't, if you're, like especially entry level or maybe a student physical therapist um, and you don't have any like real experience with um, ACLs altogether or the phases and this just sounds like, you know, you're like a deer in the headlights um, 
to you in regards to these phases. Uh, a good article is the recent advances in rehabilitation of, of anterior cruciate ligament injuries uh, by Kevin Wellick and McCreaney and James Andrews. Um, they're the big ACL guys. Uh, it's in 2012, so it probably can be updated because the procedures have vastly changed. The hamstring uh, autographs have become more popular. We're now seeing, um, you know, them adding an additional, I guess, I guess a tether or string to the ACLs. We're seeing ACLs trying to spare the original ACL. So things have changed quite a deal, but, um, you know, similar kind of goals. All right, we want full knee extension. These are their varieties of getting knee extension, proprioception and balance, uh, more balance drills and those sort of things. Um, talking about, we'll talk a little bit about the strain of, you know, open connect chain versus closed connect chain uh, on the ACL, what would be better. Um, we can talk more about these sort of things. Criteria for return to play and uh, again, more, uh, now this is about what graft is the best. Uh, we can talk about that too. Uh, but if you scroll all the way down, then we have an accelerated rehab uh, protocol. If you really just don't have, uh, for a patellar tendon graft or a bone tendon bone, um, if you really just don't have any sort of thing to kind of work off of, uh, this gives you goals, um, criteria to get to the next level, some basic exercise. Again, a little bit obviously cookie cutter, uh, the goals should be, I guess, not so cookie cutter, but the exercises and those sort of things, that's, you know, this, you know, they're trying to generalize it to a whole a whole public here. But it gives you like post-op day one, post-op day four, the seven. Um, we talked about, you know, the control ambulation phase, and now we're kind of talking about this advanced activity phase. So a really good, ex uh, just a basic sort of thing to kind of get your head wrapped around if you just really don't have any experience. But um, going back to what Brandon um, was talking about with, you know, NMES, that first sort of thing is, you know, quad control, quad, quad, quad. Um, what is my kind of opinion on it? You know, early on, I think uh, anyone at ACL didn't matter. They were going to get their, you know, 10 minutes of 10 seconds on, 10 seconds off. Uh, ACL, full extension, which I know kind of goes against what the research says. It should be like 45 to 90. Uh, for um, at 45 to 60 degrees. Um, and I just did it again, kind of cookie cutter, wasn't thinking, didn't, didn't really put any thought to what the, the client needed specifically for them. Yeah, sure. Can it help? It can fire up the quad, even if they're, but if their quads are already cooking and it's already good and they can contract it, they can control it. They have a good Q score. Um, do they need more NMES? Do they need a supplement to that quad? Um, it's almost like, you know, taking pain medication when you're not in pain, you know, you're not really helping the brain out in that case. Maybe that person needs more knee flexion at that point. Why don't I spend those 10 minutes regaining knee flexion or doing joint mobs or working more balance and those sort of things. So um, I always, you know, every minute's precious in the clinic. So um, not unless it really is a sleepy quad, mm. we can't get it going. I'm not seeing much of a contraction at all, or it's very easy, fatigable. Um, am I throwing that enemy S in? Um, but what about you, Brandon? What's your strategies? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I've, and I think early on, I actually took the stance opposite where I didn't want to, I, I thought stim and all forms of stim were, were you know, a waste of time Double. or something that they could do on their own. Um, and, and even sure. to this day, I try and focus the mo most of the treatment on, uh, you know, higher quality and, mo you know, active, um, or manual therapy as possible. Um, I'll try and order, um, if their insurance allows it where they can get one of those portable stim units at home and instruct them how to use it and spend some time. But like you said, th those minutes in the, the clinic are precious. We have, you know, three hours, you know, maybe four hours max with, with the patient and, that's not even with the patient that's that they're in the clinic. Uh, most patient or most clinics are, you know, very busy where they're seeing four or five an hour. So how much time are you actually get with the patient? Um, I'm not trying to have the patient sit on stim ice heat or some other passive modality for most of the time. I want to be as effective as possible. Um, so there are times I've spent a majority of the session 
having them doing the most low level exercise, but they're active and they're being watched like, like a hawk to get that quad going. Because um, in my opinion, that the NMES is, you know, can, can be a crutch for some people. Um, don't get me wrong. Like you said, there are some people who need it. And, you know, I think that takes some time to try and identify those people who, who, you know, are going to be some problem and getting that quad going versus some people, you know, they respond, like you said, right away, they're ahead of the curve. Um, and I know you brought up Adrian Peterson last time, I guess rumor has it that he had a quad contraction and a straight leg raise a couple hours after surgery. I mean, that's mm-hmm. not most people. Um, but there's clearly some neuromuscular rewiring there that, uh, he's, he and other people can probably progress faster than, than, you know, mm-hmm. maybe the average person who's not an athlete, but plays a sport. I think there's a difference between, you know, an athlete, uh, versus somebody who play who is a athlete because they just play a sport and maybe not a natural gifted athlete. And I think that goes into, you know, mindset and, uh, neuromuscular capability and coordination and all that other stuff that we're not going to get into right now. Yeah. Um, and we got to take into account, especially those individuals like genetics and those sort of things, their muscles are ready to rock and roll more than, than anyone else. So, um, but yeah, um, I think we're on the same boat with that. Go ahead, Brandon. Yeah. You, you had just showed, and especially for, for clinicians who are either new grads or, or students or who just ha- don't have a lot of, um, maybe they're switching settings and they don't have a lot of experience. I mean, go to the APTA uh, practice guidelines. They have a um, nice resource here. Uh, share that for you guys of, you know, what to look for and implement in, implementation. And, you know, should you be looking at, you know, what things you could be doing towards flexibility or strengthening or running and core um, to give you timelines they give you the, the up-to-date research um, they talk about the PEP program, which is really more of a preventative thing or a warm-up uh, thing for, for people um, or, or teams, people coming out of sports, what they should really focus on. And we'll get to that aspect later on in our conversation today, Jer. But I just wanted to share that as a resource for other people that, um, you know, the APTA is, is a good resource. Um, I hope you guys have your memberships. If you don't have a membership in your PT, I don't know what you're waiting for. Um, they have valuable resources. People say they suck, um, and they may have their, their shortcomings, but they also have a lot of, um, resources. If you take the time to look, it's just taking the time to look and navigate, um, and read through this stuff. And I know a lot of people want things handed to them on a silver platter, but, um, yeah, a lot of stuff is there. Yeah, um, I guess conversation for another day. <laughs> yeah, I guess we should, you know, let's, let's transition to, I guess, weight bear, uh, closed chain versus open chain exercises, when to do them. Uh, there's, you know, different people stand on the, the fence, different side that you can do open chain, you know, kind of off the jump. Um, or once they have a quad, uh, quad strength and quad control, um, some people want to wait until, you know, six, eight, 12 weeks out or whatever the case may be before they initiate. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I'll share some articles in a bit, but yeah. What do you think, Jer? Um, yeah. So I know there, especially when I came out of school, um, there was a, a big knock on kind of close connect, um, open kinetic chain on the potential strain that it can cause on the ACL, which may cause one more pain. And then obviously uh, potentially increased laxity on the, on the fresh graft. Mm-hmm. So for, and I'll be, I'll, I'll admit that it's like, I'm pretty sure I'd lead a lot of my ACLs almost through almost their entire program from start to finish. Or we're talking about months, you know, return up to return to sport where they haven't, they didn't touch an open connect chain exercise. Um, simply because of that uh they seem like they did okay in the well and uh, i mean that's good and all but obviously at this point i want the best and you know shoot for perfection with all the clients but um there's nothing uh especially you know the the biggest problem post acl you know if you sum it down is you know probably a lot of extension but ultimately you know quad inhibition uh and there's nothing that can quite get the quad going um, more than open kinetic chain exercises, you know, do, you know, work out in the gym and 
for a while just stick to like squats and you know lunges and stuff like that you'll you'll get definition to your quads but spend some time doing leg that ex- leg extension machine and that's how you get the really yoked up quads but right. you know so yeah teardrop. um so there's definitely uh, a place for it um i do tend to um i tend to wait a couple weeks um you know unless there's really you know, someone who's got one of those quads that just aren't waking up, um, mm. you know, people can visualize and see. And at that point, you know, it's, we've probably tried a lot of the close uh, chain exercises, the NMES and those sort of things. Um, but if it's really just not working, it's still weak. They're still like, you know, not confident with walking because their quad can't hold them up in like stance phase and those sort of things. Then you really need to throw in that quad, uh, those open kinetic chain exercises, like your LAQs or knee extension, your SAQs, um, to really build up the strength of that. Cause if, if not, they're just going to not be so confident with it, but yeah. What about you, Brandon? Yeah. I think we talked about this, uh, last, uh, to, um, last podcast where the, the long-term quads, inhibition and you alluded to uh deficits i mean they're alarming uh anywhere from 13 to 44 percent at uh at one year and four to 21 percent at two years um hamstrings not too far off either anywhere from five to 18 percent uh as well so i definitely use it i I like um my long arc quads or, or you know knee extension machine um i mean there are ways to to help mitigate that uh, those forces, if you're worried about the integrity of, of the, uh, the ligament, um, like you, I, I wait uh, until they have a, a good quad set and, and at least zero extension before I'm doing that. But, you know, those last five degrees of motions, when you get that VMO um, and that screw home mechanism, if we're going biomechanically, mm-hmm. um, this article by uh, Camellia, uh, Wilk, and Andrews in 2012 talk about moving up the the pad up the shin away from the ankle to just shorten that lever arm and stress if, if you're worried about that um but there's still benefit in getting uh especially from i guess what 45 degrees to zero degrees um is really where that that quad's working the most and i think if you some people even say between 10 and 50 degrees um mm. is where like the the peak forces and, and um i guess activation are occurring uh so you know, be mindful of those ranges when you do it. Uh, I'm worried about that, that terminal knee extension and are they able to lock out and, and maintain that lockout? So, um, I'll, I'll have them hold, um, that for like three seconds or, or five seconds, uh, sometimes with their, their, uh, long arc quads or, you know, knee extension machine, just so that that muscle can, can get used to holding and locking out and not giving way as soon as, they uh, they reach that because they're going to need that when they're running uh, or when they're walking to be able to maintain and kind of lock out at zero degrees or whatever their um, normal knee extension uh, range is. So I, I don't think we uh, we should you know overlook open chain and poo-poo it right away. Throw it, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, with that said, and I think we should probably transition. Is you know what is our strengthening looking like prior to running? Um, you know, are we doing double leg squats, single leg squats, uh, deadlifts, RDLs, uh, things like that? Um, and you know, that's probably transitioning from phase two to phase phase three, I guess, with our prolonged strengthening. Yeah. Um, did you want to put up that article? Did you have it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, let me uh, let me get it real quick so uh, so people can see it. Yeah. Um, but that. yeah. Um, as Brandon, as our conversation kind of transitions, um, what what we do before running uh, is, you know, you got to think running is, I think someone put, I forget who put this this way, is controlled falling uh, okay. over and over and over and over and over and over. Um, and it's it's a pretty high, high level thing when you think, if you break it down in slow motion there, a fully extending their, their strider, their legs, they're landing on one leg, they're balancing, controlling on it while they're running with, you know, force and speed. So, um, our, our therapy prior to that needs to kind of prepare them and replicate those sort of things. Um, 
so I know, and I'll, I'll pull up the article um, about how we just assume, you know, at the typically the three month marker is the running frame. That's what all the clients come in. They're like, my surgeon said three months I'll be running. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, that's, that's great. And all that's something that we shoot for. Absolutely. But it's not just three months because of healing tie lines. It's hopefully you're also hitting some criteria. Um, you having good strength of your quad and your hamstrings as, as Brandon mentioned before, um, you have good balance and control. You're confident. Uh, I know some people, um, I mean like ACL groups and those sort of things, they're still walking funny at, you know, six, nine months. Like, well, you should have probably been running at that point. Um, so, you know, obviously I take it to whatever the client can give me. Um, I, you know, somewhere before we start getting to the more advanced strengthening, I'm doing advanced balance drills, like, you know, single leg balance, you know, kicking a soccer ball while balancing on the operative leg, um, kind of getting them a feel for more of those advanced, more higher thought process exercises versus, you know, just like something like a straight leg raise and heel slides and forward, um, mechanism control mechanism. Absolutely. And, um, and then from there, I'm going to try and transition towards, um, you know, single leg RDLs and those sort of things, working a control component, but let's start adding some strength. Um, you know, starting off with our, you know, squats, getting to goblet squats. If there's no shift or anything like that, then, you know, going from box squats and to, you know, barbell squats. So, um, yeah, it might not be a, a ton of volume in those sort of things but in reality um they have to have a good amount of strength before they start to get into running um i'll put up those article the article about you know how we're not how most of us are not really putting up uh or not testing enough before running but mm. what about you there brandon yeah i'm uh i'll get to that in a second i am going to disagree with you a little bit or maybe challenge you a little bit or like maybe have a little like debate it. here i'm not huge on the whole balance activities um i i think we as a profession i'm talking globally and you just and this is going from what you know what i've seen what i've been around it's you know you, you toss them on an airx and you have them do all these balance actor exercises and what's that really doing and if you have a rationale for it, then great. But if you're just throwing them on an Airx, but I'm not saying you, I'm just saying out there. Um, to me, your balance is coming from strength and control, both concentrically and eccentrically. Um, when you talk about running, running is, running is a plyometric activity over and over and over again. You were talking about the forces. Uh, I mean, we've, we've said before, it's like seven to 10 times your body weight. Um, you know, seven to 10,000 newtons of force being placed through it. If you don't have, you know, the appropriate range of motion and strength, what's really going on there. Um, so I, I like to focus on, you know, my progression of double leg exercises, double leg RDLs, um, with a hinge style. So we're really targeting those hamstrings, um, to prevent and add a buttress to help support the, the ACL. And then the double leg exercises like lunges and, and squats. I love lunges. I think it's a great single leg exercise uh, or split stance exercise uh, where you're getting that concentric eccentric load and you're getting a balance kind of uh, point as well. But if you can control a step down and a lunge, you, you can, you know, control uh, running. So I really try and focus my activities on those type of exercises, single leg RDLs um, when they're appropriate uh, step down exercises loaded and um, lunges as kind of my balance ish activities, but you're getting that eccentric force, that concentric force, that feed forward and feedback mechanism um, before I, I go into that as well. Yeah. So I do have, I guess, a rationale for it. Um, I know also there's, if you look at the power um, balance exercises, um, their effect on power, they actually result in a decrease in power. That study, um, obviously, it doesn't look in like, oh, well, if we, you know, did balance or proprioception um, plus power exercise, which my program encompasses a lot. Um, we have like a glute activation, 
core activation. We try and get a, you know, a powerlifting movement, an Olympic lifting movement, you know, balance, and then the return to sport exercises. Um, that's kind of how I frame some things as people start to get um, more and more advanced. But in those early stages, um, it's more probably I also I do that more for a confidence sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them, you know, with those double-legged exercises, we'll start to see weight shifts. Correct. We'll start to just see them pushing off or just using their you know, non-involved leg. Um, so me getting them to do some more balanced stuff, them focusing on that one leg. One, balancing on one leg, we're further enhancing that, you know, first co-contraction quadriceps hamstring. You know, you bend the knee a little bit, it's, it modifies some things if they still have some quad deficiency have them doing knee, full knee extension. Uh, but then I can start to throw in more with the, like the single leg balance and those sort of things. Um, you know, some components of their sport. Can you do some of the squat and throw a ball at them? Yeah. Um, but that's, that's just more of a psychological buildup for them is where, all right, I have a hockey player towards ACL. He's balancing on a pad wall, playing around with the hockey stick just more some sort of thing to kind of get them back into into like oh wow i'm not that far away um at that point that two three month marker uh that's where the mental fatigue and drains come in so if you can kind of give them a little something this is my practice and how i see things um that's where i start to see it so if i can give them a little bit um you know, almost kind of bargain with them and it kind of lifts up their spirits a little bit, um, give them a little more confidence on that one leg, uh, then, you know, I consider that a win. But, um, you know, you know, what you do, working your kind of program, you know, that's probably by physiology standpoints is probably superior. Um, I want to say superior. I, I want to just throw out there and really just challenge the way we, we think uh, with this um, and not just, you know, throw the, the standard exercises out there. But why are we trying to do this? You have a rationale. You're trying to improve their confidence um, in that leg. Obviously, more reps need to be done on that leg. Um, obviously, it, it's playing a balance because you don't want to throw them on that one leg too soon. Uh, like you said, you don't want them shifting using a double leg uh, an exercise. However, you know, studies like that one I just showed you, the Escamelia uh, ex- um, study showed that um, double leg exercises reduces stress and force on it. So it really depends on your timeline when you're doing these things. Um, mm. And that's why I think it was just a good conversation to have on just yeah. to, to some thought process to just really challenge our clinical decision making and clinical reasoning and what are we basing these things off of? Because uh, like you said, that just because you've reached three months doesn't mean you get to to go running. And I, I think, um, that goes into some of these special tests with running and return to sport, such as the Y, y balance test and the Val sport cord test, the left test, uh, less test, uh, lower extremity, um, scale. Um, you know, what, I guess, do you use these things, uh, triple hop test, you know, how much stock do you put in them? And, you know, are these tests good enough to let people return to sport um, when we have this data that shows, you know, we're doing something wrong because not everybody's able to return to sport the way they, they want to, or that we're having a high retail rate uh, typically of the opposite uh, leg. Um, and I know you shared a story of your friend who tore their ACL like five times or something. Um, but yeah, what, I guess, what are your thoughts on, on progression and what, metrics to use to see if people are ready to not only return to running, but return to, um, sport as well. Sorry, I just said poor. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I do a battery of, of tests, which I shouldn't call them tests. I was actually listening to a performance coach of mine and just calling them tests around the client, um, kind of puts them at unease and, I do kind of recall that with some of my clients is like, Oh, it tastes test day. Let's see if you're ready. Those sort of things. And all of a sudden, like they're not the same person, uh, you know, he's kind of using KPIs or key performance indicators. Like, Oh, we're just 
he kind of phrases it. We're just uh, you know, checking how your performance is of late. Uh, so something that I, I just kind of listened to a podcast and, you know, picked up on that. Um, but yeah, I, I typically do a full battery of things where I do do the hop testing, um, single leg hop, uh, triple hop, crossover hop, and the six meter hop. Uh, we'll do the, the tuck jump test. Uh, we'll also do a standard vertical jump, single leg. Um, now I just got vertical jump stuff. Um, we'll do a, you know, comparison of quad and hamstring one rep maximum testing. And we'll give out the psychological readiness to return to sport test and the, uh, the coos, the the outcome, uh, survey. Um, so I expect, I think used to be when I came out of school was 80%, uh, was the criteria, now it's been up to 90%. Me personally, it's at least 95%. Uh, and that, all that's all fine and dandy. I still may shut someone down or hold them off if I don't feel like they are ready. They can, a lot of times they're mentally ready. They'll have great psychological readiness to return to sport. They'll fail some of those physical measurements um, or vice versa. Uh, which is more surprising because when I give out the psychological readiness to return to sport test, it says it on the top of the page. I'm not even trying to hide it. Yeah. So uh, I think one girl I even gave in the testing was on the bottom of uh, the scoring and she still gave herself pretty low. So, and then some other times just kind of being around the client, you know, which is another emphasis of why I think the therapist should always stick with the client through and through um, and just kind of be in tune with your client. Uh, you, you pick up on some things of like, is this person really ready or not? It's I'm seeing them day in, day out. Are they just doing well enough for the test because they want to return to sport? Or it might have been seeing things that would suggest that they're, they're not quite ready. So um, not that I want to shut anyone down. I'm always, you know, pride myself on getting people as ready as early as possible. But you know, sometimes uh, I will kind of pull the cord on someone, uh, even if they are doing well, because I think they need more time. And that's something I always explain. I'm like, listen, you know, you have your whole life ahead of you. Obviously, this is more younger people, mm-hmm. you know, but, you know, what's what's the hurt in waiting a couple weeks, even if you did pass these sort of things? I'm like, it's ultimately up to you. I can't control you or your body. Um, but, you know, you give them the the – your opinion and by then they should respect it and I haven't had any backlash from it. So that's pretty much what I, what I go for um, with all my ACLs um, in the clinic. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm with you. Actually, sometimes I, I pretty much focus on my strength in it and apply metrics even before I add them to running. Uh, Cause to me, running is repetitive plyometrics. Um, Mm -hmm. So you know, that's something I, I want to make sure they're comfortable with landing on, on two feet and on one foot and things like that. Um, I'll use the Y balance test. Uh, like you said, I'll, I'll use a lot of the, the, the hop test, the triple hop test, the crossover hop test, um, the less test. I'll use the, the valve sport cord test. Um, you know, a, a lot of the, these tests, like you said, like it's test day, but, you know, it, it takes a while to, to do all these things. I yeah, it takes a whole freaking session. What's up? Yeah, it's it takes a whole session. session. Just hop testing. Yeah. If you're doing hop testing the right way, it takes the whole time. It takes a while, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll look at the AIKDC uh, form. Um, like you said, when we were coming out, uh, the hop testing and, and some of these stuff was um, said to be 80 85%. I, I always thought that was too low. Um, I was between that 90 95 and and like you said, I, I think I've even gone to 95%. Like, why is anything less than symmetrical um, mm-hmm. allowed to, you know, to, to to be a threshold for people to go back to to their sport when we know uh, the biggest injury, uh, biggest risk of injury is a previous injury? Um, and if you go by some of the research on the Y balance test, and you know, say what you will about the the generalizability of it, um, it's still predictive of lower extremity injury risk. And if you have asymmetries, you're increasing your likelihood of two to six. 
um, time. So, you know, compound that with a major operation um, and rehabilitation of a major ligament. I mean, why, why just try and, hit, like you said, hit the bare minimum threshold to allow somebody mm-hmm. to go on? Um, and then, like you, you said, you see these people day in and day out, and this is kind of a sports reference, especially when it comes to college players transitioning to the NFL. Um, do they pass the eye test? Yeah, their their numbers can be great. They could have 4,000 yards passing and 30 TDs and, you know, two interceptions. But do they pass the eye test? Does it look like they can move right, correctly? Does it look fluid? Does the quality of motion look good? I, I think we need to develop a keener eye uh, for something like that, coupled with some of these objective testing. I'm not saying just go by your gut. That's not what we're saying here. But I think you, you uh, compile them all together and you'll know if somebody is ready to go. And then with some of those outcome forms, like you were saying, I try and cover up the name sometimes because, mm-hmm. like you said, people will see it and then just circle all high stuff. Um, yeah. and let's, hopefully you've built a good rapport with them and say, you know, be honest with yourself. Um, you know, if we have to delay you a month, it's better than being delayed another year because you tore it and have to redo this whole process. Um, yeah. You know, find a way to communicate with your patients where you're honest with them, they're honest with you. And I think if you're honest with them, they're more inclined to be honest with themselves and with you as well. Um, and this is aside from helicopter parents and parents pushing them in. I think that's a whole nother different conversation, but uh, you know, that's kind of what we're going for. And with the, the wide balance test uh, we're looking for a, a four inch difference, less than a four inch difference. Um, and with the forward reach and um, less than a six inch difference from the, the lateral side. Uh, so just something to, to go by with there. And I can't remember cause I don't have a white balance anymore, but I forget there was one. So posterior lateral was known to be lower in ACL. I can't remember now. Yeah. The like, posterior, yeah a, believe it. Yeah, it's a, it's named by the leg that you're standing on. So posterior, yeah. lateral, which is basically the star excursion balance test. Yeah. We uh, do that. Break it down. Um, that, yeah, actually they, they found out the back three, if you, if you took, forget the white balance test, if you took the scar excursion test and just did the forward one, the, um, posterior medial, the posterior, posterior lateral, that's pretty much all you need, um, to do. So you can kind of take away some of those pointless other in-between steps. Uh, if you're looking for effectiveness and efficiency with that exercise. So... Um, I know, yeah, but why balance? Do you have at the I, clinic? I don't, I don't hear at this clinic. I did at my old clinic, and I did it a lot um, there. Now, mm. now I pretty much do everything else, um, or I'll just put a piece of tape down and measure it with, you know, uh, yeah, tape, and, and then add it up and stuff. Um, and you kind of you're able to get a feel for for that. But yeah, that's something I've wanted to add to the clinic. I just haven't yet. Yeah, I get the FMS. I was like, oh, I'm gonna use it. In- the new FMS have that motor control screen or whatever, which can act like a, mm-hmm. um, you know, act yeah, like a wide balance. Yeah, yeah. You just have to kind of turn it with them and play around with that. But then ultimately I just kind of, for those posterior or those lateral components, I've just used the star excursion balance test. But um, yeah, I mean, I've been in situations where people have done well on those tests and, you know, sometimes has shoved out. And then the big thing is, at least with me and my practice, and I'm going to, you know, assume that it's probably similar in your practice there, Brandon, is that we hold our clients to, you know, higher expectations than one themselves, but hopefully they, we kind of, uh, you know, you know, they kind of take our, our style of approach, but definitely more than the surgeons themselves. So a lot of the time, these surgeons will, again, what's the, how long does the, their examination, especially follow-up examinations, especially six-month or nine-month follow-up examinations, they're quick. It, I, I, most of them, I, I think towards the end, they don't even like check range of motion or anything like that. It's like, hey, how's it going? It's good? Okay, good. Uh, you're cleared for X, Y, Z. And um, sometimes you have to be, you have to look out for the client and say, Hey, I do not think you are ready. Um, you're you're doing disservice to them, and you know we talked about that study where so many people have been released to return to sport, and they bombed all these return to sport testing. 
um, you know, you have to be the one that says, Hey, yeah, I know your surgeon says it and know you're dying to get back out there. Cause it's probably been at least nine months, uh, since you played the thing that you love the most, but I really just want to make sure you're not getting hurt out there. Um, so every person that I've done that with, um, probably at first was probably wanting to key up my car or something like that, but ultimately, um, has, has been fine with, with things and actually been happy and ultimately probably thanked me towards the end. Um, like I, I had one guy who's cleared at four months. Uh, he was the best wrestler in his, in his class in high school at the time. Mm. And he was a freak. Again, he was, he was one of these outliers that was way beyond, um, you know, most, and it was, it was fun to work with. But the surgeon looked at him and was like, oh, you're good to go. You can go back if you want. I'm like, just in respect to healing timelines, I'm like, did he remember how far out you were, what day of the surgery it was? Yeah. Um, so, you know, take someone who was at his level, I'd be like, listen, no, you, you shouldn't. Um, and it took some convincing, but, you know, ultimately they listened to you. Um, and you got you to understand you may not have the – the ultimate say uh, it's really up to the patient and potentially the surgeon, but you can make a huge influence on these clients for the better. Yep. So yeah, that was my two cents into that. Always, uh, always welcome. Always appreciated. Um, you know, I want to say, you know, we talked about our return to sport criteria and some of the tests we use, but that's not even standardized that there is really no standardization. Let me see if I could pull up. I don't think there's any validity to them as right? well. Yeah, it's just a bunch of stuff that is, has been said, and there's been some studies down. There's a, this study here uh, by Michael Reinman, Cell. Um, I'm going to butcher this guy's last name. His first name is Justin, so I apologize <laughs> for not being able to uh, to say it. But they talk about the association between passing the return to sport and second anterior um, cruciate um, injury. Mm-hmm. And it's really, you know, uh, the overall 42% of the patient, almost 43, um, have passed the, uh, the return to sport criteria, but, you know, 14, 15% of them who passed had a secondary injury. Um, you know, what, what, is that, what does that tell us? And, you know, hopefully maybe there's some listeners out there who, who work in maybe a university or hospital setting and maybe they have access to, to more technology or, or uh, more research and they, maybe they can provide some insight, but, you know, as a whole, I think we need, need to try and not rush people back and really um, dive in on some research and make sure we're hitting our markers um, with these patients. And, you know, we need to kind of, you know, set checks and balances, I guess, to kind of sum up that, that aspect, you know, post-op at six weeks at four weeks, you know, are, are they hitting the range of motion? Are they hitting their quad? Are they hitting some, some basic, um, I guess metrics before or key key performance indicators, as you were saying, before we begin to to progress them. Um, and you know, I know it's boring in the beginning, you know, those first you know four, six, eight weeks with a patient, but that's what's going to set the table for them to do the more infor- important stuff. And I think Absolutely. us as therapists want to get to the more important and fun stuff of, of agility ladders and cutting and loading them up. But um, you know, we have to remember at what you know, what risk are we doing that? And, um, mm-hmm. I know Jeremy and I talked a lot about the quads and, and knee extension and, and stuff, but, uh, I really think it comes down to addressing the core and, you know, uh, pelvic stabilizers, hip stabilizers, uh, and strength as this order, um, this article here talks about it. Um, you know, they, they looked at 15, uh, non-contact ACLs and what they found was that, uh, hip strength, um, for external rotators and abduction was significantly lower in the injured athletes versus the non-injured. And then they uh, had cutoffs based upon body weight strength compared to the body weight, which is something that maybe we should, should look into and not just distance or symmetry of distance between left and right. But how about let's look at strength relative to somebody's body weight um, as you know, if we look at it, that's what's going to determine what they're, they're stopping. That's inertia. I mean, we're, we're going into physics here, but uh, obviously a larger person is going to need to be able to, to stop that weight um, mm-hmm. going full speed and stop and cut on a dime. Um, so maybe uh, trying to incorporate, you know, a ratio 
Um, and maybe there's research out there. I don't actually, I don't know. Um, and I haven't looked to see if there's, you know, some type of research that's been done to standardize what the, I guess, ratio or percentage of strength to body weight should be. Yeah. I've, have, no, okay. I haven't seen anything like that, but no, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, you got to think of why they had the ACL injury in the first place. Uh, most of them are non-contact. Um, and we know our PEP programs and everything like that. What do they typically address? And if you're in the sports um, an active clientele um, type of clinic, what do most lower extremity individuals lack? It's probably some hip and core, either motor control or strength altogether. Um, so I always, I took this from a mentor of mine, Sharon, you know, you may have gotten injured, which sucks, but you'll become a greater athlete uh, with what we're doing after all this. Because, yeah, we have to address all the things with an ACL, your quad, your, your knee extension, range of motion, swelling, yada, yada, yada. But we're looking at preventative too. So we're addressing all these hip weaknesses early on. All right, yeah, we cooked up your quads in the first 10 minutes because they can't handle anymore. All right, well, I'm finally hitting your hips, which – have not done anything in your sport since you played. Um, and then as we're moving to those more advanced uh, drills of like hurdles and jumping and ladder drills and agility stuff, I'm looking at making sure you have in good form. So, um, you know, that's something that, you know, make sure you, you, you encompass everything with your rehab. Um, so ultimately the goal is to prevent it from happening again or, yeah, going down the route of my friend who have had five ACL tears. Yeah. Um, I think it was in a group and some girl at seven. Oof. I just saw it this week. I was like, oh, my God. At this point, I just stopped. <laughs> Stop. No. I was like, no. Don't, don't do anything anymore. Like, oh, um, boy. But, yeah, with that, actually, you know, good segue, Jerry. You brought that up. Um, you know, at what point? Do people need surgery? Do all people need surgery? There's something called ACL copers. Uh, and I'll just kind of rattle off kind of what the proposed um, it, you know, criteria are for somebody who is a coper, which means that they can cope without an ACL for the audience. Um, one is a hop index text uh, index of 80% or more uh, for the time six meter hop test. Uh, the knee outcome survey activities of daily living score of 80% or greater. Uh, global rate of knee function of 60 or greater and no more than one episode of giving way since the injury. Um, this is the criteria that um, this article has. You have it? Yeah. Um, uh, is that the same one I have? I don't even know. Uh, they use a similar kind of approach. This is the, okay. I believe the Udell study okay. cool. of Coopers versus non-Coopers. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's just um, – good for people to be aware that there is this stuff and maybe you can educate patients. Okay. Okay. You know, this has been your X amount of one. Maybe we try a different approach. Um, but you know, there have been known athletes. Um, Dewan Blair was an NBA player who didn't have his ACL since eighth grade. He made the pros. He was in the league for a few years. Um, he was clearly a, a coper. Um, but Jerry, I don't know if you have uh, anything else to add to that. With the copers versus non-copers, yeah, I even I think the first blog I wrote for for my company um, was a coper versus non-coper because I believe Carson went just towards ACL right when I started Trifecta. So um, yeah, I believe you know it's something that we we don't look into enough, and it's really depending on the goals and those sort of things. Um, I think everyone should be given an opportunity uh, of coming in before their surgery. Sure, you know, plan a date. I don't care. Maybe for a couple months. Research says three months for uh, to really see if it would work, which most people aren't going to wait, but at least maybe give them a month and they can get an idea um, of, you know, and the best thing about it is like, all right, let's uh, you tore your ACL, plan your surgery in a couple weeks to a month. Uh, we'll rehab things. We'll see how you do, how your stability um, goes. A big thing I look for is make sure that the, you know, it doesn't give way. Um, obviously, some strength and those sort of things. So their strength typically returns a lot quicker than a post-op ACL. Um, 
And then, you know, worst case scenario, all that rehab that you did becomes prehab and they're going to do a lot better. You restored range of motion, you restored some quad control, yada, yada. Um, but yeah, you know, we have a guy right now who was, who's, who's slated for an ACL, um, repair. Thankfully, I mean, COVID came in, uh, pushed back to surgery, rehabbed us with us. And he's like rehabbing once or twice a week with us. And now he's, he's, he's finally, he's like, maybe I really don't need to go through with this. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, those are the, I put them through a same similar battery of tests. Uh, and I, I typically will, you know, explain to them that, you know, yes, you are missing something that's, you know, kind of important to the, to the whole knee and the body and those sort of things is you should remain active. You know, if you kind of just stop working out and those sort of things, you may start to see, you know, know, loss of all the progress you made, you know? Um, so, you know, as long as you're staying active, you're doing your thing, then, um, you know, it should stay that stay, you know, asymptomatic and those sort of things. But, um, yeah, I try, I try to, uh, especially based off their goals, you got extremely high level goals. Um, you know, you're trying to play like collegiate ball or you know, professionals. Maybe that's a little bit different, but every year, um, if I pull up that, I wonder if that link still works. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Let's see. What link are you talking about? Uh, ESPN used to release a, a, a non-ACL and ACL team uh, every year. Okay, well, this is complex. Uh, well, it's ruined by injury. Did it change? Um, this isn't it. Where is it? I, I can find it, but um, most of these guys on this list, yeah, uh, ACL, Terrians, ACL, Jay Williams. Um, yeah, well, he was in a motorcycle accident. Yeah, uh, almost lost his leg. Let's see if I can. I, I can. I'll, I'll find it while we're talking. Is um, ESPN used to release an all non-ACL team um, of just guys who didn't have their. Um, didn't have their ACLs, uh, which was kind of cool. They also, they release a, um, a, a team of, of guys who've done it like post ACL and yeah. like, you know, Tom Brady and, you know, Don McNabb did it, Adrian Peterson, but there's um, a lot of athletes, Heinz Ward, Matt Light, John Elway, all, you know, played out the rest of their careers without an ACL. So it can be done even at the most highest of levels. So you guys see again. I think the main thing is if it's giving out uh, frequently, you know, that poses a risk that they may tear the rest of their ligaments and have a multi-ligamentous tear. But that's yeah. you know typically what I'm shooting for is because again that usually shakes up people's confidence pretty bad when it just gives out on them all of a sudden. But yeah, that's me. Yeah, I was just looking at just if. Uh... I could find what you were looking for, but right now the the thing on Dewan Blair came up, but um, that is it. What did you look at Slate? Slate dot com. It was like no ligaments, no problem. Uh, uh no, I haven't done that. Yeah, so it says Dewan Blair. It named some of the guys you had named um, before. Um, Philip Rivers, well, he he got surgery. He blew out his knee, played a couple of games before he got surgery. Um, Heinz Ward uh, has a missing uh, ACL on his left knee. He was a wide receiver for the Steelers. Um, like you said, John Elway. Not not Elway, uh, Marino. I think so, Elway did it too. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, uh, I, you're right. It was LA, not not Marina. So yeah, I mean, again, it can happen, but LA yes. Mantle Mantle was running out in the outfield and tore his. He, he landed in like a, a drainage. He tripped over a drainage in the Yankee Stadium, um, and that was back when you know ACLs would have ended your career because it took took a year in a hospital. Um, Joe Namath apparently didn't have one. 
um, Bob Lanier, uh, Thurman Thomas, and that's the end of that one. Anyway, we're getting sidetracked here. Yeah, uh, a little bit. So, well, I'm, well, I'm there. We'll wrap that up. Yeah, I just finished uh, my drink, so. Hopefully, this was a, a good podcast for everybody. You guys uh, found a lot of golden nuggets and, and at least questioned uh, maybe some of what you're doing or just learned some stuff that you can add to what you're already doing. Um, and that's pretty much it. Jerry, anything else to add? No, that's all. And, um, yeah, if you have any questions or debates or uh, you know, need advice of any sorts, feel free to reach, us, reach out to us at Nips and Sips on Facebook and Instagram. I'm at The Decent Doctor and at Trifecta Therapeutics. Brandon's at Think Like a Fellow and at Pursue PT Now. Uh, thanks for listening in and uh, cheers, everyone. Cheers, guys.